Welcome to the Clear Choices Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Eigner, and it is my unique privilege to bring you intriguing conversations with people who have made the bold choices necessary to elevate their lives and create a positive impact on the world. By hearing their stories, I hope you walk away more motivated and more inspired to do the same in your life. Because we all have choices to make. My goal is to help inspire you to make more conscious and powerful choices, clear choices. Now let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our newest episode of Clear Choices. I'm so excited to introduce you to our next guest. His name is Paul Walker, and he has truly lived an incredible life. He grew up in Southern California, and he was a very successful student athlete. In high school, in La Cañada, he received honorable mention in basketball and also was the Southern California State Champion in tennis doubles. He went on to play for many colleges and ultimately ended up at Point Loma University in San Diego, where he was actually an NCAA first-team All-American in basketball and inducted into the Point Loma University Basketball Hall of Fame. After college, he eventually married his beautiful wife, Vivian. They had two children, Preston and Travis. And he was a very successful businessman. He was first in pharmaceutical sales, and he owned his own construction company for almost 20 years, Walker & Walker Construction. That was a very successful business. And what brings Paul to my show is the fact that here's a gentleman who really was living a great Southern California lifestyle, successful, making money, happy family, living in a nice house. And then he made a radical change. And that's why he's on Clear Choices, because he made the choice to change something significant in his life and get involved in youth sports and helping others. Uh, So, Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about that choice and that pivot, that major pivot you made in your life? Good morning, Rob. Um, Yeah, I'd be glad to share that with you. It was a choice that came out of left field, really. It wasn't anything that I had planned on doing or I was, uh, it was part of my ultimate goal. It just came out of, generically, out of a situation where I was involved in and around some local community underprivileged kids and through, through sports, through soccer mainly. And being in that environment when my, my sons were young, I connected with it. I connected with the players. I connected with it's being at sports and I being of Latino descent from my mom, I speak Spanish fluently. So I connected with that demographic. And as time went on, there was a need to get involved with this group of kids and players and some miscellaneous coaches that were working with them in clinics. And they had come to a crossroads where it was kind of falling apart and there was no real clear leader from an admin point of view to somebody to help structure and and oversee it. And so either I had a choice to walk away from it and go join another group with my kids or get involved and not only get involved and not walk away, but get involved to help all the others that were involved there and start to really formulate a plan that was not only for the for that current period, but also for the, their future of these kids. 
And so, so Paul, let me ask you a question. What year are we talking about here? 1999. And, and at that point, you're still heavy, heavily involved in running your construction company. Correct. And, and so when you say you started to get involved and provide leadership with this youth soccer team, what did you do? What was, what was the first role you took on? Really, it was a role of uh, team admin, and there was nobody else to step forward to become that. So now I want to flash forward really quick so the audience understands the magnitude of that simple decision that many youth sports parents take, which is I'm going to be the volunteer manager or the volunteer coach or whatever it is. So now let's flash forward to that, that choice that you made there to get involved in your kid's soccer team. Now, uh, so the audience understands what you've created. What is it that you're operating now? What takes up basically most of your time or all of your time? It's called Total Football Academy. And that is a club that now has grown to approximately 80, 80 teams, approximately 1,200 players that are registered in this club. Wow. And the club spans from Fresno to San Diego. We have 12 chapters, what we call chapters, that make up the club. So the club's got a very big footprint and a big a reach. Um, they all, all chapters fall under the one uh, club banner. So you obviously in, in the 1990s, when you decided to become the team manager, you knew that you were going to have a 1200 kid club after that, right? Yeah, right. There was no way of knowing anything. I, I didn't even know how to be a team manager, let alone run an organization with 1200 players and, you know, uh, on and on and on. So first of all, you know, you're not by nature a soccer guy. I mean, you were a all American basketball player. You got involved in soccer because your kids were involved. There's a, there's a lot to bite off in interviewing you because, you know, I already know uh, how significant of an impact your organization has had. And I want to get to that in a second, but again, I want to pivot back to, so now you're, you're the team manager for your kid's soccer team. Your role starts to increase. And what led you to the point where you, you sold and got out of a successful construction company and pivoted into being full-time into the soccer, youth, youth soccer? Yeah, uh, it didn't happen in 99. That was where I started to be exposed to soccer and start to understand this game, the sport. Uh, and then I translated that into how would that, how can I translate or, or, or do something with that and create an opportunity for these kids? Because predominantly the players that were involved in at that time were from the inner city, local communities, underprivileged type backgrounds. And I saw an Got opportunity. I, I related to it because I didn't grow up with a, you know, in, a, in a, an environment of wealth. By any means, I grew up in an inner city um, environment. You know, it was a struggle to survive every day within my, uh, you know, peers and, and community that I grew up in. And I was around this demographic as well. And being Latino myself, I connected, I immediately connected. And I, I guess I translated my journey as a youth, playing in the parks and doing everything I did and competing and and eventually making it all the way into college and getting a scholarship and going on and becoming a professional in my adulthood, that I saw the journey. I lived this journey and that this sport 
no matter what it's called, these players have that same opportunity. They just don't realize it. And so that was stimulating me now to get even further involved and beyond being a team manager. So uh, years later, I realized that in order for me to really make an impact and really structure a, a creative vehicle, what I call a vehicle, that would propel these kids from youth to hopefully graduating through our academy and on into college was going to require me to go into it full-time. I couldn't be part-time doing construction, running a construction company full-time and part-time at the soccer fields. That wasn't going to work. And the other part to this that was stimulating me at the time were there were many, many projects that I was coming up with in my head. And I was thinking of many things that was stimulating me and driving me to get involved. But there, there was no way to get involved with all these projects or initiate any of them unless I fully engulfed myself into that world, which meant that I came to that crossroads where I had to make a decision to leave the construction industry in my company that I had built for 20 years and go into this with unknown, unknown. Now it was all on me, although the construction company was pretty much on me as well because I was an entrepreneur that started the company. And so talk to me about talk to me about that transition. I mean, that's like, what does that conversation look like with your wife? What does that conversation look like internally when you go like, what are we going to do financially when I sell this business? And now I'm going to transition into youth soccer, which, you know, is not exactly the most lucrative industry. Yeah. Well, it's pretty scary, pretty stressful. Now, I'm one of these kind of guys that I'm not afraid of taking chances. If I've got a plan, if I've got something that I fully believe in, no matter how many naysayers are, no matter how volatile it looks to everybody else, I go and I know I'm going to achieve it. It's just something innate in me. Um, And it's hard to explain that to somebody who doesn't feel that way or has never been. Yeah, because most of the American public, most of the public from a behavioral standpoint they are seeking security and safety. That's the, that's the norm of most people. And that's not a judgment. That's just a statistical fact that people are looking for comfort, consistency, safety, reliability. So you, you really were willing to take a, a huge leap because you had a very successful construction company. Yeah, correct. I mean, for me by myself, if I didn't have to answer to anybody, well, then not, not a big major deal. But of course, I had a wife to talk to. I have a family that I'm supporting. And what is my future going to look like? So knowing this, I I wasn't going to cold turkey, just leave construction and jump into this potential projects or potential, you know, whatever, without planning, without doing proper planning. So what I did Mm -hmm. is I took approximately, took me about eight months to generate the first project, to build it, to establish it, and to actually execute on it. And once I knew that that project was running and up and running and it's already brought in money, it's brought in a, an affiliate because it was called the affiliation program that I had, you know, now there was an, an element of fi- a financial element component to this that was now generating income. And there were more opportunities that could build on this affiliation program that could create more opportunities for financial benefit 
and on and on and on that would grow the program and help grow other things. It's unbelievable. It's like you planted a seed and it grew. Well, but all and that first seed, that first seed was what year? That was uh, 2007. Okay. So in 2007, what would you say? And I'm sure the goal is very similar, but what would you say was the goal of the organization? And then once you've stated that goal, tell me and tell us what now is this 1200 person soccer organization? Tell me, tell us some of the highlights and achievements that you've had as a result of that goal. So what's the goal of your organization? So yes, the goal, it blew and blossomed into helping doing a community involvement through sport, using sport as the vehicle and soccer being the sport of choice to impact the community and the youth in the underprivileged communities. That didn't mean it was just specifically for them, but it would definitely be an opportunity for them. Because what we did was Understanding youth club sports in general costs a lot of money. And for the right. underprivileged families or inner city youth families, even families that, that are blue collar and white collar, they costs are tremendous. And so I wanted to do something to eliminate that or at least keep it at a minimum so that these families would be able to have their kids participate in what club soccer is and that so- environment. So basically, if I can interject is, and you know, so audience members understand for those of you that don't have kids that are playing youth club sports, we're talking about a minimum annual cost of $2,000 a year and up to easily $10,000 a year if there's a lot of travel or a lot of equipment involved, depending on the sport. But it's safe to say that youth soccer, you know, families in traditional club soccer teams are going to be spending three to $4,000 a year to have their kids participate. And in, in the case of your demographic, Paul, uh, they just couldn't afford that three to $4,000 commitment. So you created a vehicle for them that allowed them to participate at a high level and not incur that cost. That is correct. We, um, well, we've created a, a nonprofit back in um, 2001. And so we are operating as a nonprofit. And so as a nonprofit, we're looking constantly to help and benefit people, not rake in money and stuff it into our pockets. And so we give, and that's been my whole mission as well, providing this vehicle or building this vehicle and providing it to these families and these type of families, but also to eliminate the pay to play element to club sports. Or and what's, club. The, what's, the, what's the name of your charity organization? The Los Angeles, F as in Frank, C as in Charlie, Barcelona, soccer foundation quite long there's a great uh kind of user-friendly name that you also use which i love which is kids off the street yes correct that's the platform we speak from because that is what we do that's our mission and that's what we call it the kids off the streets so tell me a little bit about how kids off the street translates to getting these underprivileged youth into school which i know one of your major missions yeah, well, kids off the streets is pretty self-explanatory, um, especially when you're talking inner city. There's many benefits to what that means, and that is keeping them out of trouble, keeping them out of the, uh, you know, a kid could be walking home from school and he's in danger, his life's in danger. And this goes on every day out there. And so 
by having a program that these players and these youth can come into after schools, like an after school program in the evening, knowing they're going there, their families have planned their whole week around where they're going, where they're going to be at. And it's in a safe, enclosed environment where they're not wandering the streets or out, you know, who knows where, and their families don't even know where they're at and possibly in areas of danger. And so we speak from that because as these youth grow and age into their, you know, early teens, it's a very difficult period of time for them. There's a lot of choices that are coming at them. And many of them, of these choices are bad choices. And especially in those kind of communities, right. um, with gang, you know, activity all around them, gang men trying to recruit them into the gangs. Everybody's trying to be somebody they're not. And uh, without having a disciplined environment to live in through either the home or somewhere to go that's teaching them that or giving them that, then they may typically make the wrong choice. And, uh, that's what this does. I want to, and I really appreciate that. And I've, you know, seen it in action with some of the results your organization has generated. I want to share an interesting statistic with you and get your feedback on it. And I'm sure you know this, but I want the audience to hear it. In general, colleges and universities really struggle to serve the low income community or the, and the families that have first generation of college students. So listen to this statistic, 60% of the wealthiest students graduate college, while only about 15, 1-5% of low-income students graduate. So how does that resonate with you when you think about your mission statement? So the whole goal here is that education is paramount. That is what this is about. It's not about playing soccer uh, and wasting time. It's the ultimate is to get these players into soccer, to I mean, into college. And the only way they're going to get there is by having grades, the proper qualifications to get into college. Right. And so that all of this starts when they're young, when they're little, and they're being formed through their different, the different grade levels and what are required of them until they get to high school. Well, once they hit high school, the clock starts ticking. And if they haven't been prepared in a specific way by their their parents to understand, uh, to be disciplined, commitment, what doing homework is about, what grades, GPA is about. And, and if they don't have these tools and they don't really know what that's about, right? They're, they're going to struggle once they hit high school, even junior high school and into high school. And it just gets progressively worse. And it becomes so overbearing to them as students of how far behind they are because they're constantly behind and behind and they can never catch up. And most of these kids are inner city schools, high schools. So there's so many students in these, in these high schools that the classes are graduated from one year to the next. And you could say 70 or 80% of these classes that are promoted to the next grade are failing or D students. Wow. And, and the rationale, I, I was shocked a long time ago. I went to a parent teacher conference and I asked the question, how is it possible that this student is being passed to the next grade when he's got all outs and D's on his report card? How is that possible? And they looked at me and they said, Paul, there's 2000 students 
waiting to be passed to this grade. What are we going to do with all those students if we don't pass all these students forward? So it's just, a, it's just a system of failure, basically. Yes, correct. System of failure. So in our program, the demand from these kids or the uh, when they first come in is commitment, discipline, respect. These are things that we demand of all of them. And as they grow, they're learning how to respect each other, how to respect their coaches, how to respect adults, and not to be afraid to say thank you and that it's a good thing. And to teach them values that it's very important for them as a youth, as small kids, so that when they get to high school, it's not a problem. They don't feel awkward. They don't, you know, feel like, oh, you know, I don't, you know, I don't do that kind of thing because I'm above it. It becomes part of their life and discipline from how they train, that they show up all the time, that they're on time to the games. And what are the consequences if you don't follow this stuff? There's always consequences and they learn, even though they're young and they're not the ones responsible for getting them to, to practice on time or getting them to the games. They realize, though, that there are, you know, there are demands on their parents and on them. And in this whole process of educating, and giving these kids these tools, their parents are also being educated at the same time. Because they, they maybe realize. haven't been, they haven't necessarily been held to account until now. Correct. Yes. So, so Correct. talk to me about two things. Give us an example of one of your favorite or one of the more impactful success stories that you've seen come out of your program over the last 20 years. Wow. You know, um, fortunately, there have been many. One in particular, that was early on in this project that came through is a, a boy that came out of a very difficult community in, up in the area of Oxnard, very gang infested community. Mm-hmm. He had family members that are in, involved in the local gangs and easily he could have fallen into that. Fortunately for him, he was born with athletic talent. And so he started to play soccer as a youth. And to him, it was his out. It was his way of getting out of that environment. And then he noticed, or he felt, he could tell that he was very talented and it came easy to him and that God had touched him in this way and gave him this ability. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, he was not doing well in school. And he came in when he was, I think, around 13 years old to our program. By the time he was 17, 18, of course, he's got all these scholarship offers. Every university around Southern California and outside of California were offering uh, scholarships to him. When they checked his background in terms of grades and education and all that, he did not meet the standard. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, at that moment, he lost the opportunity. However, through his background and understanding what discipline and commitment and drive and his ultimate goal to play soccer in university, it, it stuck with him. And it stuck with him so much so that he decided on his own, he's going to do that. He didn't want to fail. He didn't want to fail himself, but he didn't want to fail anybody that had been in his corner for the last six years trying to help him Mm -hmm. and show him the right path. And what he did is he turned it around and on his own, he did qualify. He went back to junior college, stayed in contact with some of the universities that had offered him a scholarship and asked them, if I get qualified, is the opportunity still going to be there for me? And And one of them said, yes. Thank God. And the coach brought him out and gave him a scholarship. And two years later, 
this boy graduated from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. He could barely read or write his name when he first came to our soccer program. And to speak to him today, now as a young adult, he, he, there's no way you would know it's the same same boys, professional, well-spoken, vocabulary beyond, unbelievable. And it really, really is a phenomenal success story and one to be a part of that I'll never get tired of talking about. That's awesome. That's uh, yeah, so, so powerful. Uh, and I'm sure he'll always be, you know, grateful for the support and discipline he got from, from Total Football Academy. So with 1,200 players now in your overall organization, how many players, just ballpark estimate, how many people and families do you think you've touched over the years? Oh, wow. I mean, are we talking uh, 20,000 by now? What are yeah. we talking? I would, I, I mean, I've never even thought about that, but to quantify it, I, I would say, yeah, 15,000 kids. Wow. And so, so, so talk to the audience a little bit about just some of the overall successes you've seen the organization have. Like, so some of the, some of the big milestones that you, you've hit, like the, you know, some international tournaments and, and, you know, being part of U.S. soccer and some of the major things that you've accomplished with the group. Yeah. Some of the big ones are results of all of this work that we all do because the goal isn't winning the game at the end of the day and having, you know, being first place. That's a byproduct of everything we do. Mm -hmm. And although we built this academy, we built this vehicle for, you know, using soccer as a sport. The vehicle that we chose to build and create and manage and organize, I mean, it's up to us to decide how big, how great of a vehicle. We could be a, you know, Volkswagen Bug type of vehicle at that standard, or we could be a Ferrari if that's what we choose to make it. Mm -hmm. And I'm one who wants to be involved with the best that I can possibly do or create. And so what I've created, or and with a lot of help, by the way, this isn't just about me. We've created, when I speak of we, we've created a vehicle that is a top-of-the-line vehicle that provides tremendous tools and, and opportunities for our kids. And in that, we attract a tremendous uh, level of talent, uh, talented players. And with our talented coaches and, and staff involved in this program, it translates to great things at the end of the day in terms of results. That we have grown and our notoriety of our program has grown tremendously over the years. Of course, big organizations out there take notice of this. And that is an important thing, I feel, for the overall program. Mm -hmm. And one of them, uh, or some of them in particular, one is in internationally. Part of our program in educating these youth at an early age and having a big impact on their life, not only here locally, but it's taking them to Europe every year. Mm -hmm. So we do that. We take a group of kids on our dollar. We fund it and we take kids, a whole group of them, 18 players to Europe and we take them for 10 days and they get exposed to things beyond soccer. Of course, soccer is part of that, big part of it. However, they're being exposed to cultures beyond borders. They're being exposed. Imagine kid that can barely drive blocks away from their inner city community, let alone to be, you know, 
cruising around Barcelona or other cities of, of Europe. Probably, the, so probably is, the first time they've been on a plane in their life. Oh, yeah, for many of them. First time and probably the last time, unless eventually they become adults. They'll all want to travel. I know that. So this has been a great impact on these kids. They come back from this trip very different. And they're 11-year-olds at the time when we take them. They're not 15, 16, 70-year-olds. These are 11-year-olds, some of them 10-year-olds. And talk about an impact on their life, what they've been exposed to, to show, to open up the world to these boys. It's just an amazing thing to see and how that translates every year as they go through the program after they've gone. So that's an annual trip we take. And we've been doing this now for since 2008. Wow. Uh, so it's, it's quite significant. And we can only take 18 players, obviously, because we're funding these trips. And that's that's a very big budget to be able to, you know. Yeah, right, right, right back to the, you know, you're, now you're saving many, many of these players the traditional youth soccer club fees. And then for a certain select group that are able to, make the journey to Barcelona, you're now funding international travel for them. So you're, it's a truly a, a life-changing service you're providing. Oh, yes, for sure. So how does this feel? When you look back at, you know, not only the results that you've had and, and the lives that you've impacted, but, you know, opening them up to travel and college and these, these opportunities that they might not have ever had, how does it feel for Paul Walker? Oh, it, yeah, it's hard to put in words. Um, but this is my, this is my passion. This is the reason I'm involved. This is why I left my career and jumped into with both feet into this full time. It drives me many ways. The satisfaction that I get out of watching these youths go through this journey. Mm -hmm. And I know the journey because I, I went through the same journey, very right. similar. So I understand the journey. And I can see these players, you know, making it through. And I never got to go to Europe when I was young. That wasn't part of, unfortunately, for me. However, the rest of it, though, is phenomenal. And to be able to experience it alongside them is gratifying. To be in Barcelona with them and to sit there and just to observe them and how, I mean, you just see the joy on their faces. You just see you can see the impact. I mean, these kids get, I mean, practically are in tears. They're so thankful for the opportunity, thankful for what we're doing. They don't even know how to express it to, to us. And it's not about that. You know, um, it's that they make it through, that, that someday they graduate and they go on into college. That'll be the greatest satisfaction for me. And I will be there. I will be watching them walk across that stage and move the tassel to the other side. That, that, ah. that's, I can't wait. I love that. I absolutely love that. Let me, uh, what I do in every episode is I, I select a quote that I think will be relevant to my guests. And so I've selected a quote for you that I, I'd like to hear your feedback on. And here it is. It seems to me that participation in sports can build character. But it doesn't just happen. We must be intentional about it. Parents and coaches need to demonstrate through their words and their actions the values of sports that translate well into their daily life, including respect for oneself and others, fairness, grace and defeat, humility and victory, 
and the virtue of self-denial. Wow. I mean, that could be our mission statement. I mean, it, it, <laughs> it, it pretty much aligns with it. You know, all the values and the, the reasons we run this program and that we built it is so that all of those things that you just mentioned are a part of that, are paramount in it. And certainly we're now seeing the results and you can see the results of how it impacts these kids by having all those elements and ingredients in there and by executing on them. If we just type out a mission statement and and put it on our website, it's meaningless unless you're actively executing it in a day-to-day, week-to-week, 365 days a year program. This is something that not only do I believe in, but I'm there. I'm involved. I'm, you know, this is my life. And I will make sure that all these things happen, that the ingredients are there and are being utilized and are being implemented and are being talked about. And that from our senior staff all the way down to the parents, to the kids, that everybody understands it, accepts it, and, you know, carries on accordingly. It's so unbelievable, but you've got to live it. That's great. So in your role where you're the leader of such a large organization that's impacting so many families and so many players, I'm curious how you're helping guide them on the various choices they need to make because they sometimes don't even have the tools to make some of the choices they're faced with. So I'm assuming that you're somewhat in the role of guidance counselor or therapist to some of these families. Yes, you're right. I do wear many hats and, you know, it it varies. So when they're young and we go to tournaments and we drive to San Diego and these kids barely can get out of their local communities and we're down now in San Diego, which is a major deal for them, that, you know, I will make comments to players. Some of them we pick up, some of them we give rides to, you know, And I'll ask them how they feel about this, what that means to them to be in San Diego, playing in a major tournament, being at a big hotel, potentially. That whole environment that they've never been around, what that's Mm -hmm. like for them, uh, so that they understand it, so they talk about it, and that they retain that. You know, And then as they get older and they get closer to the uh, ages in high school where they're now being confronted by potential college recruiters. You know, I talked to them a lot about my my journey and what it was like and what mm. came from that and what it's like to go to college as a student athlete and to represent a university and you know that it's the best time of my life. It's been and it will always be that. The friendships that you build in college stay with you for life. The network of friendships and people you meet in college sets you up for potential things in your adulthood that you don't have even clue about. But it's building this, building a big, big potential profile for yourself, which is phenomenal. And the ability to talk and speak and be out there, it, you know, it, it eliminates that fear. A lot of kids, you have a fear of speaking publicly, let alone speaking to adults. You know, they're no problem speaking to their peers, but a lot of them are very uncomfortable. And these kind of opportunities and growth patterns get them to a point where they're very comfortable speaking in front of anybody and to anybody. And that yeah, so you're really you're really exposing them to a level of living that can really take them a lot further in their life. And 
that's so, so impactful. And it, it reminds me of uh, when I was a young man, I was living in New York City and I elected to be a big brother through a big brother program. And uh, the, the young man that I was the big brother to, I would, you know, meet him weekly and we'd play basketball or I'd take him for ice cream or whatever it was. But then I decided at some point to take him to my place of work, which at the time was Rolling Stone magazine. And I did so because I wanted him to really see and understand what was possible for him, not just, you know, what he was seeing from his limited scope with his family and his, you know, relatives and, you know, kind of the limited perspective that that might provide him. And I really think that exposing him to that kind of work environment where I was, you know, inspired him to, to take his life further than he would have otherwise. Yeah, no doubt about it. And we do this all the time. This is part of the program, exposing these kids, just like taking them to Europe and exposing them to that. Can you imagine what kind of impact that's having on them? I'm struck by how often, how many times you must have felt, you know, emotional and proud and, um, you know, overwhelmed with the transition you've seen some of these young people make. Yeah, it's, it's never, it never gets old. Let's put it that way. It's phenomenal. Yeah. So, Paul, you had mentioned to me in our preparation for today's interview that your organization, although 1,200 players seems quite large, and obviously you've had a lot of success winning in Europe and, and doing incredibly well here in the United States, that you're still a bit of an outsider and an underdog. So talk to me about what it's like competing in that, in that situation. Yeah, youth soccer in the United States is owned and controlled by the haves and always has been. Meaning these clubs, mega clubs all over the country, prey on families for money, their businesses. Even though they they say and, and are registered as nonprofits, they really are businesses generating a tremendous amount of money. And where is that all going? Well, it's not going back to the kids. It goes into the, you, you would assume goes into the pockets of whoever's running these giant organizations. And so in Southern California, being the hotbed of youth soccer, there are an abundance of soccer clubs, youth soccer clubs that have been established for years. And these established youth soccer clubs, the big ones in Southern California, are also kind of like a mafia. They don't want anybody else to come into their world, they want to call the shots. They want to make sure that they're always on top and that their notoriety and their brand and everything is all about them and that everybody else can either join them or go away. And they'll go out of their way to try to put you out of business and impact your club to a point where it will implode and it just fails. And so being a program that's predominantly an underprivileged program, we are on the other side of the moon in terms of the haves and the have-nots. We are the Mm have-nots. And as the have-nots, we are the underdogs. And as an underdog, I fully take on that role because I guess that's kind of the role or the world I've always kind of followed. I was never the giant, you know, 6'8 basketball player jumping out of the gym or the fastest uh, point guard in the, in the country running them up. I had to find a way to survive and to compete at that level. And so I was, I've always been an underdog and I've always used that to inspire myself to work harder and to make it. So 
our youth soccer program has been beaten down by these giant youth soccer clubs for 20 plus years who try to keep us at bay first to de-eliminate us to, so that we just go away. Secondly, they realize we're not going to go away. So then how do we keep them out of anything that has uh, high value events, naming rights, certain uh, league uh, opportunities to play in? We're like shut out everywhere. And they tried to stop that. Eventually, we made through and got into those events and are now in those events. So now that we're in those events, now they try to keep creating new things that eliminates us, that keeps us away from having the opportunity or our club to be in that world. I totally resonate with that underdog mentality. I feel like you know, both as a, a young man in general and as an athlete myself as a young man, I, I resonate with that position uh, a lot. What would you say are some of the most poignant decisions and choices that you had to make around coping with that situation, that resistance, if you would, that you were getting from the soccer community? You just had to continue to compete. Yeah, you had a choice, either succumb to it and feel that it's too big a fight and you're never going to make it. And so either join them or just shut down and do something else or take them on, continue to fight, continue to evolve, continue to improve your program so that in the face of others, they value, they started to appreciate this program on a different platform than what was perceived at that time. Being that we're an inner city program, the, the common theme and the common comment out there in the general public of the youth soccer environment is that this program is a ghetto program. That it's, you know, non-organized, mm. not structured, ghetto, uh, it'll implode, don't worry about them, on and on and on. And they've been saying that, and they've been saying that for only 20 years. Yeah, that's it. Just 20 years. <laughs> so this is stimulates me. And that's what drives me. And I'm competing. I'm like, I'm still playing basketball as a youth, or I, it's an amazing thing because that fire is still lit and it's burning yeah, as the, bright the, as ever. And so I the take, juice is still there. Yeah. Rob, I take this on every day of my life. I'm fighting, I'm battling. And even though we have a little bit of success and we gain some more notoriety, there's something right around the corner that's trying to knock us down. It's unbelievable. I can never appreciate or sit back and relax and enjoy it and say, look, we made it. Never. It's unbelievable how that is. So I don't know when we'll ever get to that point where I can sit back and relax and go, you know, we made it and I, and now we're above all that and everybody can go away and stop talking. I don't know when that noise will ever disappear. It probably will someday. Uh, and I don't know that I, I don't know that it ever does, Paul. I mean, I think when when you know, if you look in the business world as an example, when when companies become number one in their category, yeah, then they're always fighting off the number twos and number threes. It never ends. I don't. I don't think the. I think the battle that you're talking about and the persistence that it is required to fight it. I don't think it ever ends. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean like that is, yeah. you know, back to what you're saying, the process of competing. Sure. Let me ask you another, let me ask you another question. Is there a decision or choice that you've made along the way? Two questions that you most regret 
or that, you know, kind of took you down a wrong path with this organization? And is there a particular choice that you made that was the most impactful and or unexpected? Like, wow, I didn't think that little choice would take me all the way here. So two questions. Well, the first, uh, I have to say, no, there was a, a choice I made that I regretted in this whole journey. Not at all, because even if it wasn't the right choice or I could have handled it differently, it's part of the process. It was part of formulating this journey and formulating. You, lear- you learned. You learned from it. Correct. Basically, it was. It, it, it was actually beneficial. To the- that's that's such a great attitude, mate. I really, I hope listeners really resonate with that because it's so easy for all of us, and I'm you know guilty of this, like I'm sure many people are. You know, sometimes you make a wrong choice and it's hard to not go, darn it, you know, why did I do that? Or I should have known better or whatever. But truly for all of us, the opportunity, the choice is there to elect to see any air quote failure as a learning opportunity, not a failure, but rather a learning opportunity. That is correct. And it has to be. If you're, if you're constantly thinking, oh, I, I failed or I did the wrong thing here, we all never make it. So to answer you the second question, I mean, all of this is hard to pick one thing or other. However, I'll give you one. I'll leave you with this last thing. Sure. When I talk about the struggle we've had to face throughout the last 20 years of competing with these mega clubs and the the landscape of youth soccer in Southern California, when I, I built what we call our academy project in 2010, it's an academy within the whole club. And this academy is, was going to become the model for the whole rest of the club in terms of organization, structure, funding, all the uh, ingredients that we've talked about earlier in terms of discipline, commitment, education, creating this Ferrari, this vehicle. When I created that back in 2010, I knew to myself, I, I made the comment, if you build it, they will come. And I didn't know who they would be, and I didn't know when they would come, if ever. I just knew it would happen, all right? So that's part of that same, you know, fearless attitude that I have. And amazing 10 years later, 11 years later now, that we've now been contacted and are in negotiations with one of the biggest pro franchises in Los Angeles to be partner with us. They came to us almost a year ago wanted to sit down to discuss how the two organizations could partner and work together. They came to us because their leadership looked into this whole history of this program and what we've been doing all these years and appreciated it so much that they wanted to have a relationship. They want to have a real relationship with this. They want to support what we're currently doing to help us improve what we're doing, not to own us, not to change us, but to help improve not only the standard of soccer, but help the lives of inner city community uh, and youth. And they want to be a part of that because that's kind of similar to their platform, even though they're a pro academy, pro MLS franchise. We are within days of finalizing an agreement with them. That is an amazing step for not only this little program that started with nothing back in 1999, to know that in 2019, we are going to be partnering with the biggest MLS franchise in Southern California, one of the biggest and largest and most 
powerful and wealthy franchises in all of the United States. And what that will do to this underdog having to compete against the mafia, you know, atmosphere is going to dramatically change that and have an impact because none of them have this relationship. It's just an amazing thing to think. So you you must be beaming with pride and excitement and anticipation for this to all come to fruition. What a, what a radical amount of growth uh, this organization has seen from, you know, when it was in its infancy. Yeah. It's just an amazing, nobody would have ever known. No one could ever could have script this. There's no, there was no roadmap for this, but thank God we did. We made decisions and choices of how we, why we're doing what we're doing for who and the impact we're having on a community and all these youths and everything we're doing is now paying off in this way. And you've really stayed committed to that mission. You've never really wavered or changed who you were, which is powerful. And, you know, to that point, Paul, I want to, you didn't ask for this, but I want to give listeners an opportunity to give to you if they're so moved to do so. So if anyone's interested in learning more about Paul Walker's organizational total football Academy, and, or if you would like to give money to help support his cause, you can check him out at totalfootballacademy.com. Uh, so it's football with an F U T B O L not football in the American sense, totalfootballacademy.com. So Paul, this has been fantastic. And, uh, you know, you're a really dynamic guy. You've created a an amazing organization that has just impacted in our rough estimates here, uh, you know, 15,000 people over, over the 20 years since you got involved with youth, youth sports. And it's just such a, a major impact. And I guess I want to end with anything you want to share with the audience, particularly about the choice, this bold choice that you made in your life to give up a lucrative business and pursue what seems to be, you know, your passion and or your purpose. You know, what do you want to say to the audience about that choice in, in closing? The choice, it's funny because it's not the first time. It's something, I guess, part of my personality and makeup that I had a choice, a similar choice at one point as a youth where I was about to graduate. I was graduating from high school and I played two sports at the time, uh, basketball and tennis. I could only play one sport or the other leaving high school. My mom said, you're going to work half the year and you can play sports. Yeah. And I said, great. So I made a decision to play tennis. So ultimately that decision to play tennis for me was the wrong decision turned out. My passion fully was basketball and I didn't understand it until I didn't have it. But I went on and played tennis and had a great career in the next few years and even had scholarship offers. However, I was very unhappy. Um, and I wanted to play basketball in the worst way. So I decided to leave tennis and take off basketball again. And I had to rebuild myself and get myself prepared with no assurances that I would get a college scholarship. And I'd already walked away from that. So people thought I was nuts, of course. And what are you doing? And my mom, you can imagine how she felt. So I knew, though, in my heart, I knew what I would achieve. And I knew what I would. And nobody was going to stop me from achieving that. And sure enough, two years later, I got a college scholarship to go play basketball. And what that did for my life, and for me, it showed me that if you follow your passion and you follow your inner innate drive, that you'll go anywhere. Nobody 
can define or tell you what your path is. They can expose you to a lot of stuff, but it's in each and every one of us how we're built to get there, to get to wherever it is we want to go. And I knew that. And so that inspired me as a youth. And it put me through college and the greatest experience of my life. And it brought to me where I am at today. And now, as an adult and involved with this organization that I've built, I can now pass that on to these kids. And I know what it's like. And not all of them will get there, but hopefully many of them will. Choices in life are difficult. Choices that, you know, having to train all the time and having to be the demands that is put on these kids from school to training to everything is tough. But these are good things that are forming them, that are forming them for their future. And they won't be afraid to take on problems and issues as adults when they are faced with them, that we all are all faced with these things. Because sports and your organization has helped them build that muscle, so to speak. Correct. And that is the truth. And you will get knocked down, but you get back up and fight again. And we teach all of these values and all these great lessons are there in our program. And me, having lived it and experienced it and actually doing it, I can pass that on. They see me as that example, which is phenomenal. I don't even have to talk about it. So you know, all I can say is you do what you feel you've you've been given the tools to do and a drive to do. And don't be afraid because through discipline and drive, it will make through the tough times. That's just the way it is. And sports taught me how to compete and how I'm not going to always win, but I'm going to come back at you. And I'm going to come back at you a lot harder than I did last time. Ultimately, I will win. That doesn't mean that I won the game, but ultimately I'm going to win. And competition is an amazing tool. Having competitive juices inside you is an amazing tool for your life and will help you as an individual make it through tough times because you're a competitor. And if we can give that and still add in all of these youth, when they're young, they're set as adults. I think that's so valid. And it reminds me of... Uh a true statement, which is that the top home run hitters in baseball also happen to be usually the guys that strike out the most. Makes sense. You know, so they're, they're, they're taking those cuts. They're taking those risks. They're taking those chances, just like you did multiple times, as you described, you know, changing sports during college and also, you know, selling your business to, to start, you know, the unknown of a, a youth soccer organization, which has now turned to, be one of the most powerful and successful in in Southern California. So I really can't tell you how, again, how much I appreciate you being on the show and and more so what you're doing for, for underprivileged youth, the difference you're making, the example you're being. And uh, I really uh, appreciate you sharing that with us today. So thank you so much, Paul. You're welcome. It's my pleasure, Rob. Thanks for having me on uh, your show to allow me to pass on my story. It's been inspirational. Thank you so much, listeners. Uh, We will have another great episode for you next week. And thanks for tuning in to Clear Choices. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've been inspired and motivated by what you heard today, please subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. Post it on social media, invite friends, and let me know if you have any potential guests. While you're there, leave us a review. 
We'd love to connect with you as well. So check out our Facebook page by searching Clear Choices. I'm available for speaking engagements and you can find more information by visiting our website at clearchoices.live. And all this can be found in our show notes. Join us next week for more inspiring stories that can help us all make clear choices. Thanks for listening.